Last weekend, I got to attend the birthday party of our son's future bride. (laughs) I have a four-year-old, for those of you who don't know. And Noah doesn't know it yet, and neither does the other cute little girl or her family, but that's beside the point. The party was at Art Venture, which is connected to the, our downtown Roanoke's um, Art Museum in Western Virginia. And they have different art stations all around where you can um, draw with crayons on paper that's on a wall or um, you can um, paint on a window, sort of like where Mark's organ thing is. You could paint on that and then you could take a piece of paper and put it against the glass and then you could transfer your painting to the paper to take home with you. But the one I want to focus on was a table where they had little balls of clay that the kids could use to mold different, um, you know, whatever they wanted to. And beside the table, or not far from it, they had little shelves on which they could place their masterpieces. One of these works of art, though, was obviously not done by a child. It was about three inches tall this dark gray, intricate little sculpture. It was a base and then a little dog, a couple of inches high. And then there was a teeny tiny little bowl and a bone and another couple of dog toys. Okay, all this really small. And then right across the front, the artist had written this little sign. A bored dog is a destructive dog. Too cute. I thought, okay, they've got all these little things sitting in front of the dog, so you know a bored dog is a destructive dog. Well, in today's scripture passage, we learn that a bored king is a destructive king. Verse 1 of this chapter sets the stage in an interesting way. It's the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to war. Okay, I didn't know that. And David sends Joab, his top military guy, along with all the other men. But David remains at Jerusalem. The previous chapters tell of all kinds of campaigns that King David waged, and yet now he's at his house in Jerusalem. It's a hill city, earlier than Lynchburg. And we find out that A bored king is a destructive king. We see him move from his couch, laid out on his couch, to pacing on the roof of his house. And while on the roof, he's looking down at some of the other buildings below, and he sees a woman bathing. Now, what was David thinking? Obviously not about his own wives, plural, with whom he could have sexual relations anytime he chose. He must have ignored any thoughts about the morals and consequences of taking a married woman onto his bed. It appears that his his thoughts were only, I see something I want, and I want it now, and I have power to get what I want. Now, none of us could ever imagine doing such a thing. We've never been tempted 
to put something into our cart at the grocery store that's not written on our list. We've never been to Lowe's and walked by the grill covers and said, my grill needs a cover. Most of us are lucky enough to have the financial power to make spontaneous decisions to buy things that we may not, in fact, need. Unfortunately, our temptations extend far beyond our taste buds and backyard grill competitions that, where we might hear, how many BTUs are you burning? Well, just these are symptoms, symptoms of our quest for fulfillment. And this often takes the form of a quest for personal power. What we may discover is that we're looking for power in all the wrong places. Our quest for personal power leads to power struggles in our homes. For instance, say I grew up loading the dishwasher with the plates facing to the right. And my partner grew up loading the dishwasher with the plates facing to the left. Now, are the dishes going to get clean either way? Well, you're scared to answer, aren't you? I'll just have you know this is a fictitious example. The the dishes are going to get clean either way. So many times our struggles are over petty things that really don't matter. They're just struggles for power. Now, it might take the form of one partner wanting to give money to charitable organizations while the other one wants to put it in an IRA. Teenagers live in a constant power struggle, seeking to understand the changes in their bodies and minds and emotions, and not understanding they take out their frustration, often on adults. Sometimes when we feel out of control in one area, we seek to control another area of our lives. Did you hear that? Sometimes when we feel out of control in one area of our lives, we seek to take control in another area. At its extreme, domestic power struggles lead to domestic violence. And unfortunately, there are no, well, I don't say, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but there are no boundaries in the area of domestic violence. It happens on every income level. It happens among every race. It happens in every neighborhood. It could be happening among us. Domestic violence creates such terrible consequences, and it need not continue And I say to you, if you are involved in domestic violence, tell someone and get help. There is help available. It's a power struggle. We're searching to find a way to feel secure enough that our power struggles become unnecessary. We begin to learn some consequences 
of David's quest for power in the rest of today's passage. When David learns that he has made Bathsheba pregnant, instead of being honest, apologizing, or promising child support payments, David seeks instead to cover up his sin. He sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, from the front line with a wily plan to make Bathsheba's pregnancy appear legitimate. David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. A euphemism for having sexual relations. Uriah leaves, but he is the man of integrity that David used to be. Because his troops can't sleep with their wives, Uriah stays away from his own. David learns this the next day, so he goes to plan B, giving Uriah another night of leave. He even gets him drunk and sends him home again, but no dice. Some people say, I'm a lover, not a fighter, but Uriah is a fighter, not a lover. If I were Bathsheba, I think I would have been pretty mad even though I was learning not to expect too much of so-called powerful men. Well, when plans A and B don't work, David creates plan C. By Uriah's own hand, King David sends his death sentence. To Joab at the front line, he sends a letter that tells Joab to put Uriah at the front and then withdraw all of his support so he gets killed. It appears to be a hero's death, but we know better. It's conspiracy and homicide, murder. What power King David has. Do you think that makes him feel good? Five-year-old Larry was watching his older brother get disciplined by their father. The dad reminded his elder son that he would now have to live with the consequences of his actions. A few minutes later, little Larry approached his dad with this request. Dad, if Josh has to go live with the consequences, can I have his room? The consequences of David's submission to temptation extend far. They extend beyond Bathsheba and Uriah, beyond Uriah's soon-to-be-grieving family, beyond his soon-to-be-leaderless soldiers. The consequences of David's greedy grasp of power will extend to his soon-to-be-born child. And will touch the whole house of Israel and even their geographic neighbors. The consequences extend so much further than David could have imagined. The consequences of our quest for power extend farther than we want to think about, too. When we're fighting with someone or even annoyed with someone, it's often an issue of control. We want to be in control. Now, you see what I have here? Some of you can, some of you can't. There's a domino effect. We create tension 
not just among the people with whom we're fighting or with whom we're annoyed, but that tension is seen well beyond. It's seen in other family relations. It's seen in our, co- our relationship with our co-workers, and the tension is felt there. It's, it's viewable in the way that we're not as productive or we're not as optimistic or we're not as loving or we're not as faithful when we're struggling for our own personal power. What is it about our fragile egos that make us have to prove we're right, no matter whom we hurt in the process? Or why do we have to prove that we have the better idea or that only our way is the right way? The dishes can only be loaded with the plates facing to the left. Why do we have to prove our own self-worth? Our worth comes from God. It doesn't come from with us anyway. God created us in the divine image, the good image of God. When we believe this at the deepest level of who we are, then our quest for power shifts. We no longer feel the need to seek power and control to fill up our insecure egos Instead, we seek power to do good things for God. Like King David's action, single action in taking Bathsheba caused a series of dominoes to fall. Rosa Parks, single action caused dominoes to fall. Single action. What can we do? We want to learn to use the power God has given us for good. Our reward then will not be the selfish, temporary fulfillment of our own ego's lust. Our reward will be a permanent joy of doing what God created us to do. On May 28, 1972, the Duke of Windsor, the uncrowned King Edward VIII, died in Paris. That same evening, a television program recounted the main events of his life. Viewers watched film footage in which the Duke answered questions about his upbringing, his brief reign, and his eventual abdication. Regarding his boyhood as Prince of Wales, he said, My father, King George V, my father was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. God says the same thing to us. My dear child, You must always remember who you are. Remember who you are, whether you're bored or whether you're busy. Remember that you are God's child and be content with the power you have. 
For with God's power, we can transform the world. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, for power. We ask for your wisdom and your courage to use it well. Amen.